You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering. But we are not murderers. Hey, Autumn. Well, hello there. Welcome to Murder Not Murdering with Erin and Autumn. We are so happy to be here this week. (laughs) Yep, we sure are. So um, how's your week going? It's a very rainy, drizzly day here in Seattle. I'm so annoyed by it. I just want some sunny weather. I think everybody's just waiting for summer to start. It's I don't get me wrong, we're Pacific Northwest girls and I do love the rain, but I also would just like some nice days, please. Are you just ready for summer? I am so ready. I had a taste of it in Arizona and I now it's all I can think about. Right? And all of our summers our summers are like really nice here too. They are so pleasant. I mean, last year it got way too hot, way too hot. Yeah, we had some heat waves that were just not cool. I've but, never had. You know. I mean, siding was like melting off of walls. <laughs> yeah, global warming is real. Yeah, because pretty intense. summer times were always like seventy, eighties, and now they're we're like in the nineties, mm-hmm. and then we reached hundreds this year, which sucked. Yeah, that was so awful because no one really has air conditioning. It's rare. I do. Okay, listen. Not most people have air conditioning and you didn't have air conditioning forever. Yes. And it's not normal. No, it's not not common here at all. (laughs) It's becoming more common now, I think. Well, like new builds and stuff, but most of the homes here are older. Like we have units. We have two AC units and Dustin and I do, but it's not central air or anything. Yeah. We would die without those for sure. Oh my gosh, yes. I remember when we were recording and I had to tell you to turn off the fan because I was getting all, I was picking up all of the fan sounds. Man, that was and Autumn was like, I'm going to die. It was so hot. I was sweating and sticking to the chair. It was not cool. <laughs> but anyway, right now it is pouring rain and it's been pouring rain all day long. It's been awful, but hopefully it'll get sunny soon. I mean, it's a good vibe for talking about murder. It's true. It sets the scene mysterious. You want to know something crazy? I'm going to give one little giveaway for my case. It takes place in Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, that is crazy. I I was actually almost doing another story from Phoenix, Arizona today. Ah. But I'm saving that one for next week. (laughs) I know I've got like I've got a I've got kind of like a backup of probably four cases that I have to get to. Mine is from California, which was yours last week. That's true. So we kind of flip flop this time. We did. Um, So we promised we were going to do solved cases this this time around. Yes. Um, Are you ready to get started? Okay, cool. I just have to get myself zen and centered. 
well, I'll just wait for you. Okay, it's gonna take all night. No, Autumn's just smudging her house right now. <laughs> I have some incense going. I'm just gonna chillax. It can't be lavender though. Okay. <laughs> anyway, most people know my aversion that know me to lavender. I just can't do it. Yeah. It's the re- opposite reaction of relaxing. Anyway. <laughs> I'm ready. Are you ready for this? I'm so ready for this. Okay. It's not a fun one, but here we go. Yay. <laughs> I know. And I, you might know this one. It's semi-famous. Oh. But to be completely honest, I didn't really know all the details, so. Okay. This is the story of the murder of Danielle Van Dam. Danielle Nicole Van Dam was born on September 22, 1994, in Plano, Texas, to parents Damon and Brenda Van Dam. Danielle was the only daughter, having an older brother, Derek, and a younger brother, Dylan. It's kind of all D names. Danielle, Dylan, Derek, Damon. They're like the Kardashians. I know. Brenda's the odd one out. I would... It's yeah. not fun. No. <laughs> Danielle's father worked as a software engineer for Qualcomm and moved the family to the Sabre Springs neighborhood of San Diego, California. Brenda stayed home to take care of the children. Sabre Springs was an upscale, safe neighborhood. It was family-friendly and had a very low crime rate. Danielle was an active seven-year-old in February of 2002. She loved gymnastics, ballet, and was a Girl Scout in her local troop. She loved coloring, playing with dolls, and writing and drawing in her journal. She also had recently taken up playing the piano. Her family described Danielle as a happy child who loved to dress up as a teacher and hold fake classes for her brothers. She was in the second grade at Creekside Elementary School. On the evening of Friday, February 1st, 2002, Danielle's mom, Brenda, 39, went out for the evening with two of her girlfriends, Denise Kemmel and Barbara Easton, to a bar in Poway, California called Dad's. Honestly, That's I don't know if I... Of a, <laughs> I don't weird name for I a bar. I was literally about to say that. Like, I'm not so sure the name Dad's is a great place. Name for no. a bar. It's kind of. It's kind it's of not strange. where I want to pick anybody up. No. <laughs> Dad's was a local cafe and steakhouse about two miles away from the Van Dam's home, and a popular place to go dancing. Danielle's dad, Damon, thirty-six, stayed home with Danielle and her brothers. Before heading out for the night, Brenda and two of her friends had smoked marijuana in the Van Dam garage. Something that in present time is no longer illegal and very common. However, in 2002, it was considered more taboo, especially in the upscale neighborhood of Sabre Springs. Like, how could you do that in Sabre Springs? We don't do that here. That's exactly the reaction of the community. (laughs) No joke. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. It's gated. Is it gated? It, I yes. Bet it, is. it was gated. It was very upscale. It, I mean, think like Medina. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. In true dad fashion, Damon ordered a pizza for dinner for the children. And around 10.30 p.m., he put the children to sleep. Danielle put on her blue pajamas with yellow flowers and crawled into her canopied bed. Damon went to bed as well for a little bit, but woke up around 2 a.m. when Brenda and four of her friends returned home from the bar. Upon returning, from, upon returning home, Brenda had noticed that their security system light was flashing red indicating that there was a door or window open. Hmm. Brenda had remembered that one of her girlfriends had propped open the garage door earlier before they had left to let the smoke out of the garage. She went into the garage to close the door and then went back in to join her husband and friends. The friends stayed for about 30 more minutes, eating some food after a night out, drinking and dancing. Yep. And when they all the macaroni and cheese, yes, like all the like greasy food, yeah. like whatever you yeah, probably the leftover pizza. That's a good point. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when they left, Brenda and Damon went upstairs to go to sleep. About an hour later, Damon woke up to check on the family dog and noticed that his home alarm light was flashing, indicating that a door window was open. He went downstairs and saw that the sliding glass door leading to his backyard was open. Well, that's scary. Right. He closed it, figuring it had been opened when the friends were over earlier and went back to sleep. Hmm. I mean, both of them. I don't, I'm too paranoid. There's same. no way I would be freaking the fuck out. Same. Like I understand Brenda, like, cause they had been out in the garage earlier and like yeah. popped that open, but like the sliding glass door leading to the backyard, I would have, maybe I thought a little more of it. Oh, I would have freaked out. I would have been like, I would have probably woken Josh up and then been like, we need to sweep the house. Right. Like, I, would have out. Yeah. I mean, I'm on the same page as you with that. Yeah. But I mean, they live in an upscale neighborhood. It probably never even crossed their mind, to be honest. It doesn't matter. I could be literally anywhere and be paranoid. Same. I mean, same, but I'm just waiting for someone to murder me. Someone is waiting to murder me. I know it. I'm on their hit list. That's right. (laughs) But it's true, though. It's true. (laughs) The next morning, Brenda and Damon woke up and went downstairs to make breakfast for their kids. Dylan, five, and Derek, ten, were already downstairs, but Danielle was not. Brenda went to go check in on Danielle and wake her up for breakfast. But when she got to her daughter's bedroom... Danielle was not there. Brenda looked around upstairs and there was no sign of Danielle. She goes downstairs to tell Damon. And when she does, they both remember the alarm and the fact that they both had shut doors in the middle of the night and had not checked on the kids before they went to bed. Panic began to set in fearing that the seven year old Danielle could have maybe wandered off alone or even worse, that someone could have come into the home and taken their little girl. At 9.39 a.m. on February 2nd, 2002, Brenda and Damon called the police department and reported Danielle missing. Living in such a safe neighborhood and Danielle being only seven years old, volunteers and police began to search for the little girl immediately, 
wasting no time. Yeah. Which was a relief. I wish that would happen every time. (laughs) No kidding. A description of Danielle was released to the public. They were looking for a four foot tall, 58 pound, blonde hair, blue eyed little girl. Last seen wearing blue pajamas with yellow flowers. Police interviewed Danielle's parents, trying to see if there was anything of importance from the night before that could be a clue in where Danielle might have gone or what might have happened to her. Brenda and Damon told investigators about the alarm flashing and the open doors, and that they had not checked on their children before they had gone to sleep for the remainder of the evening. The last time that Danielle was seen was around 10.30 p.m. at bedtime. After speaking to the Van Dams, the police were leaning towards a kidnapping case and needed to interview the Van Dams' neighbors and friends. While conducting interviews with the neighborhood, the police had noticed that one neighbor, David Westerfield, who lived in a very nice two-story home, two doors down from the Van Dams, was not home. Neighbors had said they saw David leave in his luxury motorhome earlier that morning. David was a 49-year-old self-employed engineer holding several patents for medical devices. He was a divorced father of two college students and had no criminal record. Detectives learned that Danielle and Brenda had visited David's home about three days prior to her disappearance when Danielle had sold him some Girl Scout cookies. Brenda had told investigators that her and Danielle and her youngest son, Dylan, had actually gone inside David's home that day. I don't like that. I know. Well, Brenda had asked to see the kitchen because the year before, when Danielle had told, when Danielle had sold him cookies, it was under construction and she was curious. Yeah, I still wouldn't be just walking in somebody's house. No, but Brenda did. <laughs> she was she was curious, and she she wanted to know what it looked like now. Listen, I like a good kitchen too, Brenda. But <laughs> I know. no, I know. I I also would have been like, no, I'm stranger good. danger. <laughs> I know. Well, at least it, I mean, he wasn't the one that said, "Come on in." She was the one that asked to come in. Yeah. No, that makes sense. They make small talk, and he mentions that he was interested in her friend Barbara. Brenda gets to talking and tells him that they had plans to go out that Friday to Dad's and that her husband, Damon, had plans to go out of town, so she would need to find a babysitter for the kids. Oh. Well, Damon didn't end up going out of town, but that's neither here nor there at the moment. Yeah. Detectives asked the other neighbors about David. They all said that he left for abrupt camping trips in his motorhome often, and they had a little nickname for him, Desert Dave, because he loved to go camping, especially in the desert, which I don't get that <laughs> at all. Yeah. Again, like we mentioned before, we are not good at hot things. No, so. <laughs> I would not. There, there are a lot of people that love it, and it's good for people like Health-wise, I know some people that, like, suffer from asthma and stuff. Yeah, I'm just not one of those people. (laughs) Detectives really wanted to speak to David and would wait two days for him outside in an unmarked police vehicle. They had left the morning of Monday, February 4th, thinking he might not return at all at this point. 
However, around 8.45 a.m., David returned. News about Danielle's disappearance News about Danielle's disappearance was running through the town and the rumors started to swirl about the Van Dam's personal lifestyle. During the interview process, it was discovered that the Van Dams had a reputation for being partiers, used recreational drugs, and had an open marriage. Details emerged that the night that Danielle went missing, Brenda and two girlfriends went to the bar drank and danced and came back home with two men. Brenda had mentioned that Damon and one of her girlfriends were upstairs alone together and she went upstairs to let them know they were being rude and to come downstairs to join the rest of the group. This was not unusual, however. They admitted to having an open relationship and Damon had been with Brenda's friends in front of Brenda and that Brenda had been intimate with her female friends. Some of the community felt that if they participated in this type of behavior, it opened up the home for something like this to happen to Danielle. Which is shitty. Is fucked up. <laughs> That's really shitty. It doesn't shitty. make them bad parents, especially when they're two adults consenting to a lifestyle like this. It's not like they're both not consenting to this situation. It was also discovered that Brenda had ran into her neighbor, David Westerfield, at Dad's that evening. He had been interested in her friend, Barbara, as they had mentioned when she visited after selling Girl Scout cookies, and they chatted for a little bit, but nothing too deep. Brenda said she saw him leave the bar around 1230 a.m. Detectives arrive at David's home to question him about the night Danielle went missing. David let detectives know that the morning of Saturday, February 2nd, he grabbed his motorhome from another part of town, stocked it full of supplies, and left around 9.50 a.m. He told police he had driven around the desert and the beach and had ended up staying at a beach campground. He told them that he had intended to go to the desert, but realized he had forgot his wallet at home. He instead drove to the campground at Silver Strand State Beach. He paid in advance for two nights stay. He went on to tell them that the weather ended up being too cold at the beach. So he returned home to look for his wallet and then he went to the desert like he had originally planned. After driving to the desert, he said that he got stuck in the sand on Sunday morning and had to get help from a tow truck to get free. Detectives were surprised at how open and forthcoming David was with his whereabouts and activities, even pointing out places in his home they might have overlooked. Detective Mo Parga, who was brought in because she had experience in kidnappings, was being very careful about how she was moving about his home and what she was noticing. She had noticed that David's bed did not have a comforter on it. It was just the sheets. She also noticed that his bathroom window looked into the backyard of the Van Dam's home, and there was an impression in the window screen. She put her face on the impression and realized that he must have been doing this himself and possibly watching Danielle play. The detectives had a dog with them to try and track Danielle's scent, and the dog was very interested in David's garage going there twice. 
indicating that it might have tracked Danielle's scent to the garage. David told detectives how Danielle had been in his home a few days prior when she sold him Girl Scout cookies and that it was what the dog is probably picking up on. When Mo went into the garage, she could smell a strong bleach odor. That's suspect. Mm-hmm. Detectives did not have a warrant to be searching David's home. I could tell that he was getting a little sweaty and nervous and not wanting to spook him. Mo made sure to tell him that they had been looking in all the neighbors' homes and questioning all of them. David allowed the detectives to look at his Toyota 4Runner. They noted that it was extremely clean, like it had just been washed inside and out. Detective Parga asked where he kept his motorhome and would like to give it a search. David brought them to the storage unit where he kept the motorhome and performed a basic search. Mo noticed that the bedding was missing from the motorhome, just like the bedding was missing from his home. They did not have a warrant and didn't seem to notice anything out of the ordinary, so they moved on from that for the time being. Detectives did speak with the owner of the storage facility, Keith Sherman. He let them know that the morning of Saturday, February 2nd, 2002, he saw David come to the storage unit to get his motor home. He noted that David was not with his son which was odd for him. He said that he usually always had his son with him when he would go camping. He noted that it was also out of character for David to not hitch his Toyota 4Runner to the back of the motorhome and left the SUV behind and drove the motorhome. Investigators looked into David's story and were able to confirm by witnesses, cell phone records, gas receipts, and credit cards that he did travel to the beach and the desert in his motorhome on those days. Still not convinced he was not involved, police put a 24-hour surveillance on David on February 4th. It was noted that he had given his motorhome a cleaning when he returned from the trip, but David had told them this was normal for him to do. David had left out of his story to the police that on Monday morning, a sleepy-looking, barefooted David Westerfield stopped at his regular dry cleaners and dropped off two comforters, two pillow covers, and a jacket. On February 5th, police impounded his motorhome, SUV, and other property for testing. While conducting the search on the motorhome, they brought in cadaver dogs. The dog alerted to a storage cabinet in the motorhome. When the cabinet was opened, the dog had an even stronger reaction to the shovel and lawn chair that were inside the cabinet. According to the handler, the dog reacted as if Danielle had been inside the motorhome. Authorities spent the next three weeks going through David's SUV and motorhome, and on February 22nd, they arrested David Westerfield for the kidnapping of Van for the kidnapping of Danielle Van Dam. They had found traces of Danielle's blood on his jacket that he had dropped off at the cleaners. They found her blood on the carpet in the motorhome. 
They found hairs belonging to Danielle in the motorhome bathroom, as well as his bedroom at his home. They found Danielle's fingerprint and handprint on the cabinet above the bed in the motorhome. And they also disturbingly found files on his personal computer containing child pornography. That's sick. I hate this. It's like absolutely disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. David was not admitting guilt and everyone was still searching for Danielle, holding out hope that she would be brought home alive and could be reunited with her family. On February 27th, five days after they had arrested David, Danielle's body was found. She was found badly decomposed, nude, and laying in the dirt in a desert-like area of San Diego. They confirmed her identity through dental records. That is just heartbreaking. I don't want to go into details on the state of her body, as it makes me too sad and the details are too horrific to really speak on. They were able to determine that the method of death was homicide, but her body was in such poor shape that they don't know exactly how she was killed. That's awful. Like, I don't even have words to describe what that is. It's just not okay. Absolutely horrifying. District Attorney Paul Finkst was minutes, literally minutes, away from making a plea deal with David for him to give up the location of where Danielle's body was when news came in that her body had been sadly discovered. Oh, my God. The timing couldn't have been more crucial. Discovering her body removed the bargaining tool that David was hoping to use to get life in prison without the possibility of parole and take the death penalty off the table. Exactly. So literally minutes, Aaron. That's incredible. Isn't that just like the craziest timing? It really is. On June 4th, 2002, the trial began. They suggested that the child pornography found on David's computer was downloaded by his son, Neil, who was 18 at the time of the murder. Oh. In testimony, Neil denied this. So his dad is trying to throw him under the bus when clearly it was him. Yeah, that's really awful. What an awesome parent. (laughs) For real. Part of David's defense focused on the lifestyle of Danielle Van Damme's parents who they argued had an open marriage, were swingers. and sm- It's irrelevant. <laughs> I know. They were- it makes me so angry. Right. Like, they, they had an open marriage, they were swingers, and smoked marijuana in their garage regularly. That's their prerogative. It's their fucking life. Right? They said su- the defense suggested that because of this lifestyle, there might have been other people in the home that night. No. It was just, it was just David, sir. <laughs> It doesn't change the fact that they're honest and then that that's what it was. Right. And they were all consensual adults. They weren't, exactly. they didn't have child porn on their computer like he did. Like this is nope. not, this isn't about them. Yeah. No. David's 19 year old niece testified against her uncle telling of a very disturbing encounter that she had with him when she was seven years old. Her uncle entered his daughter's bedroom where the niece was spending the night with her parents while attending a party and woke up to find him rubbing her teeth. She said she bit his finger as hard. Her teeth? Literally her. I don't understand it, but that is literally what happened. She said she bit his finger as hard as she could 
fucking good for her, and then went downstairs to tell her mother. David was questioned about the incident at the time by his sister-in-law, where he explained that he had entered the bedroom to check on the children and was trying to comfort her. By rubbing her teeth? I mean, I've never had anyone do that to me. Ever. No. (laughs) A dentist. Right? Well, they don't even rub my teeth. They, like, clean our teeth. It's just, I don't understand. That's just really strange. Very strange. I I don't like it either. But the incident was forgotten after that. But she did not see the night again. (laughs) I would not either. The trial lasted two months and concluded on August 8th, 2002. It took the jury until August 21st to deliberate, and David Westerfield was found guilty on August 21st, 2002, of first-degree murder and kidnapping and child pornography. And good. 100%. In January 2003, he was sentenced to death by Judge William Mudd. In the months following the end of the trial, Audio tapes of David being interviewed were released to the media. During his first interview, he is heard asking an officer to leave your gun here for a few minutes in a suggestion that he would like to commit suicide. In one police interview, he tells investigators that he does not feel emotionally stable. In another interview, he is told that he failed a polygraph test. So wait, is he trying to plead insanity? I don't know what he where he's no, the media released these. Oh. David says he wants to retest and that he was not involved in Danielle's disappearance. This guy has never admitted any guilt. You know what though? Like this is ridiculous. There's enough There's evidence. There's so much evidence. When, yeah. Yes. David, now sixty nine, is currently incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison. Because of the continuing 2006 moratorium on executions in California and the July 2014 ruling on the unconstitutionality of the death penalty in California, it is not known when or if David Westerfield will face execution. The Van Dams sued David, but the case was settled out of court. The Van Dams were awarded $416,000 from several insurance companies who insured David's home, SUV, and motorhome. The settlement also prevents David from ever profiting from his crime. Which is, hell yeah. Yeah, no kidding. And I get so mad at the ones that can write books or sell sell art or whatever. Yes, an overpass on Interstate 8 and El Cajon has been named the Danielle Van Dam Memorial Overpass. It is near the place where her body was found. Her family still lives in Southern California. They have formed a Danielle Legacy Foundation, which works to promote volunteerism that will initiate positive changes that will put our children's safety first. Her family kept her bedroom open for her brothers and family to play in. They didn't want the boys to forget about Danielle as she is still very much a part of their family. In 2000... Makes me want to oh, I know. <laughs> it's like I'm getting teary-eyed thinking about it. In 2019, this California Supreme Court denied David Westerfield's automatic appeal. In 2019, Brenda Van Dam released the following statement in reaction to the state Supreme Court's denial of David Westerfield's appeal. 
we are not surprised that his automatic appeal was denied because the trial evidence presented by prosecutors Jeff Desick and Woody Clark amply support conviction and the defendant's legal representation by three lawyers was more than adequate. The death penalty appeal process has already taken too long and has been a waste of taxpayer money. The cruel irony is that Judge Mudd, co-prosecutor Woody Clark, and Danielle are no longer alive, but he is. It's time for justice to be served for Danielle. Oh, I know. So it like makes you want to cry. So my sources were Wikipedia, Murderpedia, ABC News, LA Times, CBS 8, The Intelligencer, and The Going West podcast. Oh, that one was so sad. I know. Why did you do that? I know. It really was. I had heard about her before. I just didn't know all the details. And then once I started researching it and hearing everything, I was just like, oh, my God, her story has to be heard. Because you just never can be too safe. And you can never be too careful. Like, and teaching, I don't know, like, just locking your doors, making sure your alarm yeah. is set. Like, yes, the alarms were blinking, but why weren't the alarms set? And I'm not trying to yeah. like blame her parents. This is not their fault, no, of course not. but like, Nothing, it's yeah. just a warning. Like make sure your doors are locked. Make sure your yeah. alarm is set. Just, Be just little things like that could really protect you and your family. Gosh, that was, that was really mm-hmm. sad. But as far as, uh, you know, making sure that it was a solved case that definitely qualifies yeah. as solved. I would say, I mean, they had, they had so much evidence. I know. I'm just like, there's no way it wasn't him. I don't care if he ever admits it. Plus, he was going to admit it and tell them where his her body was. He knew where her body was. And then it, minutes, within minutes, like he he just, I'm so glad that he wasn't able to make a deal. Yeah, no kidding. Um, all right, guys, we're going to take a quick break. And you're going to hear from our sponsor. And then we will be right back with uh, my case. Yay. All right. We'll see you in a minute. All right. We are back. Back and better than ever. Back and better than ever. Back in business, bitches. (laughs) Did you miss us? It was such a short little break. It was. All right. So the case that I'm going to be doing is the trunk murderess, Winnie Ruth Judd. And I have never heard of this. I had never heard of this case at all. I haven't heard of it either. Hopefully none of you have, because this is, uh, (laughs) it is quite the story. I'm here for it. Winnie Ruth McKinnell was born on January 29th, 1905 to the Reverend H.J. McKinnell, a Methodist minister and his wife, Carrie, in Oxford, Indiana. Winnie married at age 17 to Dr. William C. Judd a World War I veteran, more than 20 years her senior, and moved to Mexico with him. Sadly, William was a morphine addict as the result of a war injury, that he, and he struggled to hold down a job. The couple would move frequently and live on an uncertain income. The marriage was further strained by Winnie Ruth Judd's health problems, And because of this, she could not bear children. By 1930, the couple was mostly living separate. Although they remained in constant communication, 
via letters. Winnie was called by her middle name, Ruth. And I'll be referring to her as that the rest of this episode. So Ruth moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where she worked as a governess to a wealthy family. This is when she met John J. Happy Jack Halloran. <laughs> what? And that was his, yep, his nickname was Happy Jack. We got a Happy Jack and a Desert Dave. Right? It was, uh, he was a 44-year-old Phoenix businessman who was active in the city's political and social scenes. Happy Jack was married, but that did not stop him from having multiple marital affairs, and he had the reputation of being quite the playboy. Oh, to be a white man in the 30s. (laughs) Right? And also, see, there's a difference of a marital affair and an open relationship. Exactly. But the thing is, Ruth was smitten and was added to his long list of mistresses. After a few months, Ruth got a job as a secretary at the Granau Medical Clinic in Phoenix. There she made some new friends. Agnes Ann Leroy, who went by the name Anne, she was an x-ray technician, and her, her roommate, Hedvig Samuelson, who went by the name Sam. They moved together from Alaska after Sam contracted tuberculosis and the desert air of Phoenix was suggested to help. A lot of people have speculated that Anne and Sam were in a romantic relationship. They also had an acquaintance in common with Ruth. Happy Jack Halloran. Oh, they that rented happy their Jack. Right? They rented their bungalow from him. The women most likely bonded over the fact that they were all working, earning money in a time when most women weren't. Ruth moved into Anne and Sam's bungalow for a short time, but differences erupted between the group, provoking Ruth to move into her own apartment. Supposedly, all three women had romantic relationships with none other than happy Jack Halloran at some point, And that was leading to some tension and his happiness. At the time of the murders, <laughs> Ruth was 26 years old. Anne was 32 and Sam was 24 on the night of October 16th, 1931. Anne invited Ruth to the bungalow to play bridge One of the most common theories is that Ruth already had plans to see Jack Halloran that night. So she told the women she couldn't go. When Jack no-showed, Ruth went to the bungalow. Unfortunately, no definite story has emerged detailing the events as they happened. Ruth's story has changed over multiple confessions, letters, and retellings. One version Ruth has told was that the women were arguing about Jack, and it was escalating fast. Then Sam allegedly pulled out a twenty-five caliber handgun, shooting Ruth through her hand, her left hand. And factually, Ruth was shot through the hand. They began to scuffle, and she shot Sam. After that, Anne came up from behind with an ironing board and hit Ruth. They both struggled to get the gun. Ruth said that she grabbed a butter knife and stabbed Anne with it in the shoulder and then shot her in self-defense. The problem with this story is that Sam, who I mentioned before, was supposedly bedridden with tuberculosis at the time. 
So it kind of doesn't make sense that she would be able to have the strength to get up and then go over and shoot her. In another version, Ruth, with a knife and gun, appeared in the bungalow in the middle of the night while the women were asleep in bed. The Phoenix police have insisted that the women were shot in bed. They did find a mattress, and an investigator claimed that there was evidence of blood on the mattress, but it was burned in a vacant lot. So that doesn't really make any sense. And there were no photos or proof that there was blood on the mattress. There was so much speculation over why the women argued that night. Some say Ruth was jealous that the other women had sexual relationships with Jack. Others believed that Sam and Anne were angry that Ruth had introduced Jack to a woman who allegedly had syphilis. Oh. Yeah, I heard that one come up several times. Nice. (laughs) No matter what the circumstances, Sam and Anne were murdered that night. And it's what happens next that gets curious and curiouser. After the women died, Sam's body was dismembered. Her body, head, torso, and legs were put into a shipping trunk. The upper portion of Sam's legs were put in a separate box. Then Anne's body was stuffed into a trunk. Her whole body. Oh my god. If you think that's the crazy part, you would be wrong. (laughs) On October 18th, 1931, Ruth went to Phoenix's Union Station to take the Golden to take the Golden State Limited Passenger Train. Her luggage consisted of several large trunks, which stayed with her overnight until the train pulled into Los Angeles Central Station. Apparently, her plan was to dump the bodies in the Pacific Ocean. Unfortunately for Ruth, the bodies were cut through the abdomen, so the, bow- so the bowels were released, and this sped up the decomposition very fast and a very overwhelming putrid smell were coming from the trunks. To make matters worse, there was also fluid spilling out of the trunks, attracting the attention of a baggage agent, Arthur Anderson. Anderson initially thought Ruth was hauling around contraband deer meat. Apparently in those days, deer meat was frequently smuggled aboard trains going to the West Coast. Why? I don't know. I've never heard of that either, but I guess it happened often. Anderson decided that Ruth's trunks should be held at the station, and he set them aside. When employees at the station asked Ruth to open the putrid trunks, she claimed her brother had the key and quickly left, not to return. Her brother, Burton McKinnell, did in fact pick her up at the train station, but he did not know about the crime. He then weirdly just dropped Ruth off in the middle of LA and gave her $5. (laughs) Later, her brother confessed to the police that his sister told him what was in the trunks and that's why he left her. By this time, Anderson had called the police as the trunks were suspicious and still leaking fluid. Ew. Oh, gross. (laughs) I know. When the officers arrived, they picked the locks. In the first trunk, they opened it and saw a head, a human head. And they knew this was definitely not a smuggled deer. They also found bloodied clothing, heirlooms, and handwritten letters inside. 
Lastly, the gun, cartridge, bullets, and surgical instruments were found in her hat box. Then the search for Ruth began. Apparently, Ruth walked miles to Altadena at some point after her brother dropped her off. She also snuck in and stayed in an Altadena sanitarium called Lavina, a place where she had stayed a while back when she was sick. Ruth claimed that she snuck in and stayed in one of the patient's rooms by herself with no one bothering her. Additionally, Ruth apparently walked into a Broadway store and ended up spending the night inside. While there, she wrote a confession letter, but then tried to flush it down the toilet. The, late, the letter was allegedly recovered, but I'll get to that later. Police officers were not the only people interested in the crime scene left back in Phoenix. Now, and this is so fucking frustrating, but before the scene was investigated, the landlord of the house the women were murdered in charged neighbors, reporters, and anyone else willing to pay 10 cents to tour the scene. Oh, my God. Trampling trampling over all of the evidence. No. So it was completely contaminated. What the hell? On Octo- 10 cents. You can just go through. And it had, like... And people it was wanted small- to see these things? Oh, my God. Autumn, it was, like, hundreds and hundreds of people. Jesus. On October 23rd, Ruth surrendered to police at the Alvarez and Alvarez and Moore Funeral Chapel in Los Angeles. Her husband had put notices in the paper begging her to surrender. When she surrendered, she was covered in bruises and had a gunshot wound to her left hand. So began the trial of the blonde butcher, the tiger lady, or the trunk murderess, as the media called her. The press absolutely lost it over this case. As Ruth was heading into surgery for her hand, and they were trying, the media was trying to interview her and take notes on what she was saying. Ruth's trial began at the Maricopa County Courthouse on January 19, 1932, under the guidance of Judge Howard C. Speakman. Huge crowds gathered outside massive crowds Jeez. Ruth only Ruth only faced a trial for Anne Leroy's murder and the dismemberment of Sam's body did not become a topic of discussion during her trial I think this was kind of like some of the other cases I've covered from that time where even if there were multiple homicides they just did one because you were getting they were trying to you know prove that you murdered someone mm-hmm The prosecution detailed a dramatic story in which Ruth and Anne argued over a connection to the victim with Jack. The victim had with Jack Halloran. The story suggests that Ruth stabbed, then shot Sam after a brief confrontation. Ruth's defense team brought up that everyone who had been allowed to tour the bungalow had trampled the crime scene. Ruth had a team built up of lawyers thanks to charitable donations from people like William Randolph Hearst, perhaps with the promise of an incentive of a tell-all exclusive. Ruth's parents appeared at her trial for the defense, with her father claiming that he was praying for his daughter's soul. 
The retired reverend claimed that Ruth couldn't be, could not have been responsible for her own actions based on incidents occurring in the past, including an affair with an older man when she was just 16 years old. Ruth's mother also argued that insanity ran in Ruth's family. Isn't that nice? <laughs> no. <laughs> the trial was a complete mess. Evidence was compromised. There were so many changes to statements and stories from that night, the insanity claims, and ultimately no one knew what actually happened. The prosecution also pointed the finger at Jack Halloran, claiming he must have been involved. Jack was, in fact, indicted by the grand jury in the murders. When Jack was on trial, Ruth testified against him, creating an emotional spectacle. Ruth claimed that she killed in self-defense and that it was Jack who helped her clean the scene. And it was Ruth's testimony that exonerated Jack. Since she claimed she had killed in self-defense, he was not guilty of murder. And the judge determined no crime had been committed on Jack's part. The thing is, later in life, in an interview in 1969, Ruth said she called Jack. He came over and she left. She, th she said that he had a doctor come and dismember the body and dispose of the mattress. What? There is no way that Ruth probably was able to do that on her own. No. To disarticulate a body takes strength and precision. And you have to have a really clear idea of human anatomy. Sam's body was done with such precision that they were able to sew her body back together. Oh, my God. But none of this came to light during the trial. Winnie Ruth Judd was found guilty of first-degree murder on February 8, 1933. Judge Speakman ordered Ruth to die by hanging. And she was sent to prison in Florence to await her execution. When she was read the verdict, she yawned and seemed disinterested. Later, she left and said... I've never felt happier in my life. There were smiling photos of her leaving the court. Wow. <laughs> Within 48 hours of Ruth's execution, she was able to convince the warden that she deserved a hearing regarding her mental competence. The warden overturned Ruth's death sentence by claiming that she seemed to be insane. Several, psychi several psychiatrists testified that they believed she was sane. But then she would all of a sudden have huge outbursts and act erratically. Ruth was sent to Arizona State Hospital. Inside the hospital, Ruth became quite popular. She styled patients' hair and befriended all of the guards. Even though Ruth was supposed to spend the next 38 years in the hospital and she was well-liked, she didn't want to stay there. So she escaped. She escaped seven times from the asylum. At one point, Ruth had a key to the front door given by a friend and just walked out. During Ruth's last escape in 1962, she made it all the way to Northern California and established a new identity as Marion Lane. There she stayed for seven years and began working as a housekeeper and caregiver. Reports say that Ruth worked for a wealthy woman who left her money upon her death. Wow. She escaped and was gone for seven years. They couldn't find her. 
seven years. I know. She rem- she returned to Arizona and hired a famous San Francisco criminal defense attorney, Melvin Belly, and an Arizona criminal defense attorney, Larry Debus, to handle her case for parole. Arizona Governor Jack Williams agreed to release Ruth if the whole entire ordeal went over in a hushed manner. Belly held a press conference in which he was bold and publicly called for her release. As a result, Debus fired Belly, but despite that, Ruth was granted parole. She moved to Stockton, California after her release. She was released from parole in 1983. Ruth died in 1998, exactly 67 years to the day that she turned herself into police. In 2002, a letter allegedly written by Ruth in 1933 to one of her lawyers, Howard G. Richardson, was discovered. Ruth wrote the letter while sitting on death row in Florence. In her own words, Ruth describes killing Anne in the middle of the night as she slept and only killing Sammy because she had confronted Ruth in the middle of the night. Now, Happy Jack didn't get off totally easy. He lost all of his connections and died in Tucson just a few years after the trial in 1939. The bungalow where Anne and Sam were murdered still stands today, a bit dilapidated, but a lawyer has bought it and it hopes to restore the building to its original state. My sources were Wikipedia, Pop Culture Crime, the 1969 interview with Winnie Ruth Judd on YouTube, and Murderpedia. Oh my gosh, that now, was so like twists crazy. and turns. <laughs> Many people speculated that Ruth never killed anybody and that it was all Jack Hall- Halloran and then she just took the fall. But that doesn't explain the gunshot to her hand and all of the bruising that she had all over her body consistent with a scuffle. I do think, I do believe that he did help her, though, and arrange the doctor to come and um, and take care of that body, the disarticulation of the body. Oh, yeah, for sure. There was also huge drag marks on the wood floor of the bungalow that you can see, like, huge digs through that. I'm not sure if she was physically capable of moving those either or to take a mattress to a vacant lot to burn. Like all of that kind of seems sketch to me. Same. And then the thing about happy Jack is he was super well connected and he could cover it up really easily, you know, Mm -hmm. but it did end up ruining his reputation in the end. A lot of people thought that she was unjustly sentenced, which I mean, she killed two people. Right. I mean, I can't agree that she was unjustly sentenced. The thing is, she it was one of the longest sentences ever handed out at that time. 38 years. It was one of the longest. Wow. And so people are like, that seemed too long. But she killed two fucking people. Like, come on. Yeah, like, she shouldn't get out at all. She killed two people. I do kind of believe, though, that she was mentally unstable. Like, I'm not a professional, obviously, but... I've watched interviews with her and you can see how she gets confused. She gets really emotional at weird times. And I don't know. I don't think it's an act. I think she was not stable. That interview in 1969, it was right after she like came back from her escape 
her seven year escape. And you can watch about watch it on YouTube. It's pretty interesting to see because they ask her a lot of questions about like what happened that night and everything. And she talks about uh, things that she thought that they got wrong. Again, I don't think you can really believe her because she changed her story like no less than 20 times. So it doesn't really make sense. No. But um, Murderpedia has the most massive gallery of photographs from the trial and evidence and everyone involved. It's like, I mean, we obviously use Murderpedia as a source often, but I have never seen such a large gallery of photos. Interesting. It was crazy, which is also awesome from for someone who does older cases to have all of this photographic evidence. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, warning, there is a gallery labeled graphic because it does show the contents of the trunks, including the dismembered body. And when it was sewn back together after you see it in parts and then sewn back together, which I looked at because I'm a fucking creep. Yeah, I don't think I could have done that. Well, I didn't know what was going to be in it. Okay, you know, good. it was just like, <laughs> it was just like graphic. And I'm like, okay, what's graphic? You know, I'm like, I just was expecting it was going to be like, like the trunks being open and you'd see like some blood on like the clothing and stuff like that, which you do see the blood on the clothing. It's weird that she packed up their like heirlooms and all of their personal letters and everything. Yeah, that is. I think she was just panicking or yeah. something. Yeah. And, and, her to be like I just want to go and dump their bodies in the Pacific Ocean all of that seemed unstable to me I don't know the whole thing the seeping fluids though got me that grossed me out yeah that is pretty gross not gonna lie (laughs) but I mean like it has to take an unstable person to be like you know what I'm gonna do though now that I've now that I've killed these people, I'm just going to stuff them in these trunks and I'm going to take them with me on a train and travel across the country. Like, that doesn't make sense. No, it really doesn't. You know? Yeah. And then obviously she got caught. But it was just like, I just thought this one was kind of like a crazy roller coaster and I wanted to cover it. And even though we did say that we would do solved cases and this technically, I mean, she was... uh definitely convicted of murder but she didn't and she confessed to killing them there are people that have written books about her and all of that that say that they truly believe that it was jack calloran and she just covered it up i just don't think she would follow that same story throughout her whole entire life because he died only a couple years later like after he died she probably would and like if it were me, I'd be like, oh, it was him. Like, he can't be convicted of it now, so who the fuck cares? Right, like, he's you know? a dead man. What's it matter? Yeah. She still talked about, like, she still talked about in the, that 1969 interview, she still talked about, uh, you know, uh, that she was the person that killed them and that she called him over to help. Which I do believe. Because mm-hmm. there's just no way that she could have physically done all of that. But anyway, that was my case this week. I love. We it. will be back. Thank you. We will be. I hated yours. I'm, I know. <laughs> I, I didn't really care for it either. <laughs> no more. No more child next week. No deal. Uh, mm, Autumn. What? I have a case already picked out. <laughs> Damn it. All right. So we'll be back next week, and we'll see how Autumn wants to destroy us then. Oh, and. <laughs> 
We'll see if I can get off my dismemberment game, which somehow comes up often. It does. You know what, though? I think it has to do with the cases because, like, back then they were just like, oh, you can just cut them up and get rid of them. And, you know, there wasn't forensics like there is now. So I think that that was just, like, an easy way to get rid of a body. Yeah, I mean, it's not an easy way because you have to, like, do all of the sawings. And if you are interested in dismemberment, I would definitely recommend recommend listening to Chicken Run because that's still one of my favorite dismemberment cases. Yes, that that one is a really good one. Yeah, Chicken Run is a good one. All right. So we will be back next week. If you have any suggestions of cases, please feel free to write us at info at murdernotmurdering.com. Follow us on our Instagram page because we will post pictures from both of our cases there with um, a little bit more kind of background information. And um, also, if you're interested in a personal alarm, we do um, we do work with Birdie and we have a promo code of not murdering 15. What is it? You do it. not murder 15. Not murder 15 and you get 15% off of a uh, birdie personal alarm. So you stay safe. Um, and I actually and I think that's... had a funny story about the birdie alarm. Okay. Never mind. We're not ending this. Go. Just real quick. Teresa, I got her a birdie to keep her safe. And there were yeah. some geese outside of the, uh, office like the canadian geese that like if you don't know canadian geese are aggressive as hell and so mean and there was like i don't know 10 at least of them out in front of the office a lot of them have babies right now yeah and they they were there were babies and and then they were hissing she said she took the birdie alarm used it and it worked like a charm they all left (laughs) yeah once the hissing starts they're gonna bite the shit out of you right but she got was able to get rid of them with the birdie well, that's good. You know, it's it has multiple yes, uses. Yes, just you always have it on you. I mean, for real, though, like if you're hiking, it might scare a bear away yeah. or, you know, or, you know, whatever. Mountain lion. I don't know. Yes. Um. Anyway, so do get one of those if you haven't yet. Um, they are coming out with a new version of it. We'll talk about that on a different um, episode. Yeah. But, uh yeah, that was our cases this week, and we will be back next week with more murder. More and more. Bye. Bye. Bye.